Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Welcome to part two of our archival episode featuring Martin Scorsese and Kent Jones in conversation back in 2001. Let's go now to the conclusion of their discussion about film history. So you want to go to the next? I think what do we got? Is, uh, let me see. Devil and Daniel Webster. I oh, think. Devil and Daniel Webster. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There seems to be a similarity in uh, yeah, some of the thing, characters we're yeah. dealing with here tonight, but... Uh, <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's an adaptation of The Killers by Hemingway that's, at this point in film history, I guess, a little bit less remembered yeah. than the... Um, this is less remembered, um, and I think that just has to do with Universal sometimes just not, in, not really keeping up, I, I think, um, for the Laserdisc and DVD, they, they are, you know, doing more... Uh, newer films, I should say, yeah. and some of the stuff they just uh, sometimes need a little letter or two. Hey, why don't you re-release this or get a good copy of that? And they mm-hmm. made a, uh, they have a wonderful new 35 of that actually, quite mm-hmm. beautiful. But uh, that's the killer's Hemingway story, based on the Hemingway story, which all is encapsulated in the moment when, when the guy calls him, says these two guys after you. And he goes, Yeah, I know who they are. I know who they are. And he stands there and he takes it. And the rest of this film has the two killers, Lee Marvin and Clue Gallagher, in this wild performance. By Clue Gallagher, the sunglasses uh, and the, the hair. sunglasses yeah. and the hair, and yeah. the thing did with the, the, the that shot with the uh, pouring of the uh, the water out of the vase. Um, throughout the rest of the film, uh, Lee Marvin wants to know why it was just a regular commissioned contract hit, and he wants to know why uh, Cassavetes just stood there and let them do it. He said he wanted to die. He he just wanted to know why. And there's this odd relationship too built between. Um, uh, Marvin and Gallagher, uh, they kind of, they hang out, they're always together in the same room. There's a nice scene where they're doing drip and dry shirts, they're hanging <laughs> up the shirts. Yeah. Uh, and they're, that, they're constantly that way with each other. What? No, bang. The glasses, <laughs> I mean, it's like um, uh, Men in Black or uh, John Belushi and uh, Danny Aykroyd, the Blues Brothers, yeah. or it's like uh, the opening of Reservoir Dogs. These are the, the original. Or the know. killers in the big combo. And the big the, combo, from yeah. From the 50s, the, right. the two killers, I forget. The uh, two killers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. In uh, Joseph Lewis the film. Joseph Lewis movie. But this yeah. thing is interesting because it was the first film made directly for television. And, and if any of you hadn't figured out by now that they couldn't really air it. <laughs> <laughs> because they, it was made right after the Kennedy assassination. It was made right after the Kennedy assassination. It's Ronald Reagan's last film. Uh, we're going to show you. Angie Dickinson is amazing in it. And Cassavetes is great. And Lee Marvin and Clue Gallagher just sailed through the picture that way. Um, Norman Fell, all these wonderful character actors. But at the, uh, at the end, there's a big confrontation with Reagan and Angie Dickinson, and uh, he's the arch villain in the piece. Yeah. Best role he ever played. He, he is really good in it, yeah. That and, this and, uh, and uh, the incredible thing he did in uh, uh, King's Row. King's Row, yeah. Sam Wood picture. And, uh, and what's interesting about, there were a number of pictures, we saw the name Don Siegel, and after we started to get to know movies and everything, we sort of go around, we went around and kept watching these, so that these movies had, uh, uh, directed by Don Siegel were really special. Mm-hmm. Uh, one called The Lineup, and they were sort of B films, but they had um, they had a determination in the way a scene was laid out. Not fancy camera angles. There was a couple of little tilted angles, Dutch angles here, but that weren't that, they weren't that important. But it's the way he directed the actors in the frame and the intercutting, mm-hmm. and also was conceptual. His concept was, um, and I saw him speak at the National Film Theater in 1968 in London. Uh, and he said, uh, basically, he said, uh, as with the writers, they work together on this. 
he said, at the beginning of the film, I show what the characters are, the worst that the characters are capable of. And then for another 25 minutes, you have exposition, everything's quiet, because you know already mm -hmm. what these people are like yeah. and what they're gonna do. Yeah. And so you see the perfect example of it here. The, house, the home for the blind and uh, the poor <laughs> women at the desk yeah. and the determination is, you know, uh, and it's almost like uh, the Blues Brothers, we have a mission from God, we're on a mission from God, <laughs> nothing's gonna stop us, you know? Yeah. Um, the firing into the crowd of, of blind people and, you know, with the, a silencer yeah. and apparently I just looked here and they shot him like seven times or yeah, something. Yeah, in slow motion. In slow motion, I mean, yeah. and so they had a real problem with the film uh, in that they, they didn't show it on television, they released it in theaters. But what's interesting about it, there's another kind of, uh, kind of a, an odd, a kind of aesthetic, I guess, and that has a lot to do, I think, with the color photography for television. It seems flat, mm -hmm. it's overlit, and it has that same it affected me the same way as the brightly lit scenes, the exterior scenes in Autumn Leaves mm -hmm. and um, um, uh, Kiss Me Deadly. Mm -hmm. and it was a kind of a, a dread and a fear of that supposedly sun and light. You're not supposed to feel that way, but there was something edgy about this. And uh, the, uh, the steel blue, light blue or gray jacket of uh, Lee Marvin, uh, that whole clean cut early 60s look mm -hmm. in a way. Uh, had, had a kind of a, a savageness to it. Yeah, it's a different and brand of menace. Really, yeah. really, the menace was very strong. And what they did was they took the story of Hemingway instead of making a prize fighter, made him a uh, made him a car uh, driver. A car driver. And originally the title was called Johnny North. Mm -hmm. And it was going to be it was made for TV, Universal Pictures, and <laughs> couldn't couldn't do it. And then I saw a print of it in London. They cut out all the violence. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there was nothing, there was nothing left. <laughs> there were these strange jump yeah. cuts, yeah. you know. But I was watching, and the film was watching the actors, and you just watch it, you look at that sequence, and how he stages it, the mm -hmm. walking through, and, and the, um, the extras he used, and uh, um, the terrible, what they do to the woman behind the desk, and how Clue Gulliger comes around and takes the flowers, mm -hmm. empties the water, comes around this way, uh, Lee Marvin moves, and then they don't even show you what Lee Marvin does to you, you just yeah, hear it off just camera. Yeah, off screen, yeah, yeah, it's off screen. You know. And it's again, and they all say, well, it's the old story, you know, it's like, at that time, the 60s, it was very interesting. It was mid-60s, this film, I think 66, 64. 64. And uh, violence was, uh, you were able to, to do more, because I, I grew up watching films in the, in the late 40s and early, and all through the 50s. And in the 50s, you had the traditional films, and you had the extraordinary Hitchcock period, that was so wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, some of the, probably his best films, I think, for me, were in the 50s. And, um, uh, you have Preminger, and you had Sam Stanley, uh, uh, Stanley Kramer's films, uh, uh, the ones he produced also as well as directed. There, there were films that were dealing with um, uh, taboos, breaking taboos, Man with the Golden Arm, and that'd be murder a little later on, mm -hmm. and all sort of thing. And so um, violence and uh, a certain frankness was uh, coming on, being, being made available to the American public. That was not that way in the, in the, turn, of the, the, the turn of the decade. But the in the actual, early 50s. But the actual act of violence really started to become filmed more in the 60s. In the 60s, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's the old story. It's the old story of um, suggesting violence rather than showing it. Yeah. And uh, of course, I come from the generation where we showed it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's, I don't say one is better than the other, but this reflects a certain society. And that, that, that impact of hearing that woman scream, whatever he did to her off camera, is very strong. Yeah. It's very strong. But then, in another way, so is the impact of the slow motion. The slow motion, the, yeah. The and that's, that's not real. Some, it, I think it's printed slow motion. Yeah, it looks like So it. you can see it's made very quickly. They probably shot the thing in three weeks, yeah. the whole picture. 
And um, but that's Don Siegel. You that's Don do, Siegel, right? Face Nelson did one day where he did hundred setups. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, he did a really good uh, Audie Murphy Western too. I think uh, Duel at Silver Creek and yeah. um, the film that I know uh, Spielberg loves is Hell is for Heroes. Hell is for Heroes. Yeah. Steve, Steve McQueen. And then and you Dirty were just Harry. talking Dirty Harry, of course. And that's when he really got uh, a lot of uh, uh, resentment, I think, and anger about that. Yeah. 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 But uh, by that point, then, he was really uh, looked upon as, as a, quite an extraordinary director. He also does one of them called The Beguiled. Do you ever see that? The, uh, the one with Clint Eastwood? Clint Eastwood and Geraldine Page. Geraldine Page, where he's a Union soldier in the South, and he's wounded. And he, he, the only place he can hide is in this uh, kind of a little girl's school or something. <laughs> and it's run by Geraldine Page. And it's dripping southern decadence, just dripping. <laughs> the whole film <laughs> is it, and Elizabeth Hartman. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Hartman. Hartman. Yeah. And um, it, is, it is a movie. It's all, it's atmospheric. It's all atmosphere and mood. And basically, uh, um, there's a scene where well, he's shot in the leg and they have to operate. They have to take his leg off. And uh, so then he's sort of, he's stuck there, sort of a prisoner. Mm -hmm. And there's some sort of a, a sexual undercurrent yeah. and a tension between the women. And then finally, at the end, they give him psychedelic mushrooms or something. They kill him with mushrooms, poison mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. you see, in the late 60s, I mean, these things were being done. You could do it, you know? And Clint Eastwood was great. I mean, the movie is, it's like, some, it's out on, on DVD now, I think. Yeah, and so it's, it's also another great film, Escape from Alcatraz. Escape from Alcatraz that he did? Yeah. Yeah, yeah but I, it, it's that thing of um, narrative, story, images, sound, you know? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know anymore. I mean, I, I wish I could know how to do that. Is what I, you know what I'm saying? But really, in, with economy like that, you know. Uh, but then there's um, Zhao Wu. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's a different kind of movie making. Different kind of filmmaking, and then you, you really, it's you can't choose one or the other. You know. Yeah. I think we have time. For, let's do one more clip. And I was thinking we could do the one from People Will Talk. People because will that's talk. a different yes. kind of movie. Yeah, it's exactly. Different kind of great. Stuff. So that's the clip on that's in the machine, the NTSC. Yeah, that wasn't Devil and Daniel Webster. No, it was not Devil and Daniel Webster. Which is a good movie, yeah. <laughs> so you, yeah, go to that clip from People Will Talk. People Will Talk, yes. Yeah. Wow, good God. <laughs> well, that's, that's, a, uh, that's People Will Talk by Joseph Almanco. It's 1951, I think, or 1951, 52. I think, yeah. yeah. And it was uh, written by him also, yeah. uh, based on a play. Yeah. And, uh, Again, I, I guess a lot of these things um, that we're talking about here tonight, I saw them at the a at very young age, and I saw, this is the kind of film I saw when I went to the theaters, yeah. as opposed to what's out today. It's a, you know, it's a, I don't mean to sound like an yeah. older, but. Um, you uh, mean in terms of the quality? The of quality things. of the film yeah. and, and the level of uh, um, artistry in terms of, um, well, the intelligence of the writing, mm -hmm. you know. Um, Mankiewicz, uh, had produced many pictures before he made his first film, Dragonwick, I think in 1945 or 47. And, and then he, he did these uh, really beautiful, The Devil, um, uh, The, um, Ghost, the of Ghost of Mrs. Muir, beautiful Bernard Herrmann music score, Gene Tierney and Rex Harrison. Basically a fox, right? Mm -hmm. A very tough picture called No Way Out, with Richard Widmark as a racist and Sidney Poitier. Um, somewhere in the Night. Somewhere in the Night, a film noir with John Hodiak, all coming out late 40s. And then, um, a Letter to Three Wives, which actually is quite, quite good. I liked yeah. it a lot. I, mean, I, I keep watching it. Uh, and um, 
of course, All About Eve was before this, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, I think it was All right About before. Eve. Of course, everybody I think knows about All About Eve, and it's extraordinarily written, uh, directed, photographed, and acted. You know, um, and then this strange film, People Will Talk. And I saw it. I was, if it was 51, I was um, uh, nine years old, mm -hmm. and I've never forgotten the scene. And I think uh, hard scene to forget. It, it is really <laughs> yeah. um, the, the beauty of it. The beauty of it is the the, the speech. Of course, I think the best part is the speech where he talks about that, uh, you know, she's a cadaver, it's not the human being, and uh, we're not going to talk about who she liked, whether she was in love, whether she hated, whether she was right, whether she was wrong, it's all gone now. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to seeing a body which was wizened and old and, and spent, mm. this extraordinarily beautiful woman. And he plays with her and hair. He, and what he yeah. does with the hair, it's almost, it's almost uh, uh, dangerously obscene in a way, but it's so um, elegant. Mm -hmm. And he gets, he, he just, Cary Grant, of course, uh, when we say cinema, cinema um, uh, some would argue it's a writer's cinema in that sense of Mankiewicz, but yet it was cinematic. Mm -hmm. And it's a medium shot, mm -hmm. basically from here up. He's standing up talking, and he's got that, that suit and tie that he wore throughout most of the 50s in terms yeah. of the, yeah. like, why change it? Yeah. Why change it? It works, <laughs> it pretty you know, good. seen in Technicolor, yeah. it's yeah. even better. And, <laughs> And, yeah, North uh, by Northwest, same North suit. North by Northwest, same suit, yeah. uh, houseboat, same suit. <laughs> it's great. I mean, the tie was made perfectly, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it, the thing about it is, is um, uh, <laughs> the wonderful writing um, when Hume Cronin walks in and says, uh, it's malignant, and he says, you're the only one who can say malignant with the, uh, the joy of saying bingo. bingo. Other people yeah. say bingo. And things like that. But the film had a very strange, it was uh, basically what happens in there, I don't want to give it away, but it's shown on television a lot. I think it's shown in American movie classics a lot. It used to be anyway. Um, and I must say, it's a film that, even though it's medium shots, basically of people communicating with each other through dialogue, uh, plays, I think, even better on a big screen. Mm -hmm. You just get wrapped up with these characters. And uh, Gene Crane, I, I, won't, I won't give the whole thing away, but Gene Crane is a young woman who, uh, he then examines her and tells her, everything's gonna be fine. You're pregnant and the baby's gonna be fine. Mm -hmm. And of course, she's not married. Now, this is 1951. Mm -hmm. You could not have this on the screen. Um, then later he tells her she lost it, right? And yeah, it's been a while since he it. falls in love with her, yeah. he marries her. Yeah. And then at a certain point during the marriage, he's got to tell her that... Uh, She's lost it, yeah. Yeah, she didn't lose it. And he married her knowing that it's someone else's baby. Because there's this great scene in the dialogue in the bed with the kissing, laughing, and she goes, well, by September, he says, no, actually, it'd be a little day like August. <laughs> <laughs> I, forget the, I forget the months, but she goes, no, no, you're counting wrong. No, no, you're counting wrong. <laughs> and he's madly in love with her. And, uh, this uh, other... Which Mankiewicz was at the time himself. Really? With Gene Crane, I think. Really? Yeah, I think so. And it's, uh, in any event, the, the uh, other undercurrent of the film, more than an undercurrent, is the character played by Hume Cronin, who uh, uh, is jealous of Pretorius, played by Cary Grant, and uh, is trying to dig up some dirt about him from his past. And he finally puts Pretorius on uh, sort of a, uh, a tribunal at the school, at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they do is that, the, if you notice the shot of the skeleton and... Uh, uh, the wonderful character actor, uh, Finley Curry, uh, sort of big guy sitting there, and white hair, next to the skeleton. And his, he plays a character named Shunderson. And Shunderson just follows, he just hangs out with Dr. Pretorius. He's like, uh, takes care of everything for him. Mm -hmm. And he, he's a very quiet man. And there are scenes uh, where he has this strange sort of mystical ability to uh, calm animals, dogs, mm -hmm. 
And it's quite beautiful. It's quite a beautiful film. And uh, Jung Cronin sort of gets through and says, let's find out who the Shunderson is, and we'll know what the, and they go back to his story, and eventually it's all revealed. But basically, it's, it's, um, it, it has to do with the blacklist, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at that time, I was nine, I didn't understand that. But I just stayed with the people. I don't know why the film, that, I, I guess it didn't leave my mind or my experience because of the accessibility of Cary Grant, Gene Crane, um, Walter Slezak, uh, Finley Curry, Jung Cronin, uh, that tension. I didn't understand the politics, what was going on, but I did understand that he was basically a good man mm -hmm. and he was being, he being was, attacked. Yeah, he was being attacked. Yeah, <laughs> being attacked by all these people. As Mankiewicz was. As Mankiewicz was, I didn't, as, in the director's yeah. guild at that time. Yeah. And uh, you, they were able to make a film like this? We were talking about it the other day. I mean, yeah. what happened with the. Uh, I think it was Joseph Breenoffice who said, uh, since he had done A Letter to Three Wives and Al Obadi, they were interested to see what he was going to do next. <laughs> and they, he told them about it, and they said, well, all right, if you tackle this subject matter a certain way. Yeah, tastefully. Tastefully, yeah. <laughs> In terms of the pregnancy and that sort of thing. Yeah. But the, the Mankiewicz films really must be seen again on a big screen because they are very special. Even, um, well, we're actually finally, Robert Sturm, uh, has given us the money to, uh, given the Film Foundation and United Artists, the money to restore the Barefoot Contessa. Yeah. Which uh, is beautiful Jack Carter, three script Technicolor. Ava Gardner is, is a goddess in it. Yeah. And, and Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart is a god in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in that raincoat, in the rain at the funeral, in three script Technicolor with that rain pouring down on him. It's almost like oil, liquid, the image, because that Jack Carter photography, you could, you could taste it, you know. Mm. And uh, for years, the damn, I don't know what happened. They couldn't find the original negatives. And I mean, there's a certain thing. A lot of those United Artists films at that time, um, oh, Night of the Hunter is the other film that uh, Robert Strem helped help, um, uh, restore. restore. And that will be shown to New York Film Festival. Yep. And, and also restored some of the outtakes just yeah, to see. That might be interesting yep. to see how Charles Lawton was dealing with the group of characters in terms of the... Uh, well, I'd, I want, I'd like to see how Charles Lawton was dealing with Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum yeah, and everything with Mitchum. I yeah. just, he worked on Cape Fear. You, you told me you had a very good time mm -hmm. working with him on that. Yeah. But it, it, the interesting thing about the Mankiewicz films, they, they're even better, I think, on a big screen. In terms of the, dia the dialogue, yes, there's a lot of it. Yeah. There's a lot of it, and sometimes maybe going off and, uh, and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, there's an intelligence that's, um, I think, missing, I think, now. You know, yeah. and it still speaks for now. It's, this film, whether it deals with the blacklist or not, I still knew it. I was a nine-year-old kid. I was dealing with the people mm -hmm. and the emotions between Grant and Crane and his friends, um, and her father, played by Sidney Blackmere, is wonderful in the film, yeah. and, and his relationship with his brother in the film, and uh, it's something that always stayed in my mind for years later when I got to Hollywood. I said, in the '70s, there was this thing that you, could, you when you had to look at a film or look, you know, there was no video. So you had to ask for a studio print. Mm -hmm. And you can only ask for the print basically if you're working at the studio. That's when I began to realize nothing was around. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean you don't have a print of? Uh, I said, how could you drop, how could you lose a print of the, the leopard? <laughs> I said, it was taking up space. We can't have that over here. I mean, it was the two hour, 25 minute English dub version anyway. Yeah, it's taking up space. It's taking, well, yeah. there is no space. I mean, that's it, it's yeah. gone. So these giant cans of film, you know? Yeah. And so uh, from time to time, we, we were able to uh, screen these pictures again, and that's when I finally looked at it again on a big screen. And uh, it's very seductive, and it's very daring to do that with the uh, cadaver, having the cadaver as a beautiful young woman, and to distance what we are as human beings, you know, from that in a, in a way, dealing with the, in Gangs of New York, Bill the Butcher, the mm -hmm. character played by Daniel Day-Lewis, is a butcher, and he's constantly cutting meat. Mm -hmm. 
and he knows what we're made of. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he can find the soul, <laughs> you know, yeah. but he knows what the feeling of, of the meat is and the organs and the bones, mm -hmm. you know. And that always stayed with me, that scene. Yeah. So it's the emotional experience of watching movies, I mean... It was the emotional you, experience yeah, between, when, between uh, that I felt for Cary Grant and Jean Crane, and especially when he takes her back to, when, she, when he follows her to the farm and he meets her father, and the father is living under, under his brother, yeah. you know, under his, brother's arm, under his brother's thumb in a way, because mm -hmm. he can't, he hasn't made any money in his life, and his brother is, uh, who, who, uh, who uh, allows Sidney Blackmarin uh, to live there at the house, treats him in a, in a very disrespectful way, but very, mm -hmm. very, very subtle, yeah. very subtle, I think. Yeah. And I think I just cared for the character so much. But I mean, that's what's, when I say emotional experience of watching movies, that's what's run through all the movies that we that mm -hmm. talked about tonight, you know, Shao Wu, a new movie that, yeah. you know, you just, you make the emotional connection with it. Right? That, that, that's yeah. what's happened, yeah. I, I don't yeah. think I, I don't think I can ever, um, uh, I'm just not that way. I don't, I don't go at it in an intellectual way. I just, I see something, I react to it. When I, I saw Eisenstein film for the first time, it was um, Alexander Nevsky. And they had this theater uptown called the Thalia. And if you could, I mean, you might as well be seeing it on a 16-inch 16 TV, black and white, mm -hmm. with commercials dubbed in English. Because the screen was tiny, and it was all the way, for me, it was way uptown, 90-something street. And um, small theater, um, packed in, seats are extremely uncomfortable. And the, uh, the, and the middle of the auditorium was very small. The middle of the auditorium went up. So you're sort of like in this, yeah, that's right. and trains <laughs> ran under it, and people, yeah. I don't know what was going But the thing about it, every summer, in the summer, they had these extraordinary one day only, double bills. And uh, I was going to uh, Cardinal Hayes High School, and I got Q Magazine, which is now part of New York Magazine for years, I guess. Mm. And I would look up these capsules of these movies. I'd see mostly American films. And so I'm looking at this thing, a Russian film, 1930-something, Battle on the Ice, I, uh, this, I, I don't, couldn't pronounce the names. I don't go up to the thought, you see. So I walked right in, and um, the Thalia didn't have any presentation of the films at all. They would just show the picture, yeah. and when one was finished, they'd switch over to the next reel, it was reel one of the next film. <laughs> so there's no in-between, no curtains, none of that. You know, bang, next picture was on, people are jumping in and out of seats. Uh, a nightmare. And, but uh, I walked in in the middle of Alexander Nevsky, and I think what affected me there, I walked in the middle, and I, I'll never forget the thing I heard. I'm still trying to get it now. There's a scene where they blow a kind of horn in the film I'm doing now. It's kind of a, I had it, hammered out of brass and copper, and it was kind of primitive. And the sound, uh, Fellini has it in Satyricon. And I think Prokofiev, when I first, I didn't know about Prokofiev, I heard this when I walked in, I heard this horn, these horns that were so on the soundtrack. And I think now that they've redone the music for the mm -hmm. film, I don't know if it's as, as powerful as, as what it was when it came off that scratchy yeah. old soundtrack, you know, uh, this bad optical track, mm -hmm. because it, the, 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 um, the dirtiness of it, was, mm -hmm. was what made it authentic. I never heard a sound like that before, and there was kids, something was happening up there in the screen. I went in right in the middle of the battle in the ice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I sat there like that, you know. And again, um, emotional is one thing, but uh, in a case like that, it was the, form, the formal brilliance of it, mm -hmm. which had me riveted. And also a kind of ethni ethnicity, a kind of quote authenticity, unquote, that made you feel that this must have been the way it was. If it wasn't the way it was, it has the spirit of the way it was. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a truth to it, mm -hmm. you know. I'm talking about the visual images. I'm talking about the Knights of the Holy Roman Empire, um, uh, the scenes with them holding a little baby and putting the baby in the fire. And uh, you know, the, the, the costumes are very theatrical, but at the same time, uh, suggest what that horrifying world must have been like, you know. 
And uh, so, I mean, that, maybe that's the closest I can ever get to, I guess, intellectually uh, hitting, hitting something. Because it wasn't emotional right away. I guess maybe it was. You can say it's emotional. But there was something about authenticity after the fact. After the fact. Yeah. yeah right. But they had great double bills. They had, um, you know, uh, Alexander Nevsky and uh, Potemkin. Or they had, they had uh, uh, Yiddish films. I saw The Green Light and I saw The Dybbuk there. Mm -hmm. oh, it was fantastic. I mean, and uh, uh, also then they would show Russian films a lot. They showed... Uh, you had to be careful because if, if it was an Eisenstein or Podovkin or Kuleshov, then they'd have like the Mars film productions of Chekhov plays that were shot as if they were on stage yeah, yeah. in solve color. <laughs> and you're trying to follow it. You have no idea what's happening. <laughs> you know, because everything was just, there was no interpretation, visual interpretation. Yeah. It was the Moscow theater, you know? And, uh, and the people there really understood the Chekhov and all that sort of thing, but that the Anacross, I'll never forget that one, never. I still to this day I'd like to see it because I don't know what happened. <laughs> you know, but it was a different, I would check off for me, I, you know, at that point. Yeah. Battle on the Ice yeah. was more arresting, I think. But again, yeah. it's a visual interpretation. I mean, as in this picture you just saw, people will talk. People there talking, standing mm -hmm. there talking, medium shots, and yet it's cinema. Mm -hmm. He has an eye, you know, he has an eye. And even with the film I saw recently, The Quiet American, was on TV. That was pretty interesting. Yeah, the Graham and Green novel. The Graham Greene novel yeah. that he changed a lot. But the performance of Michael Redgrave is remarkable. I kind of like that character of uh, the Graham Greene character who's morally conflicted that way. And the yeah. difference between the idealistic American and... And they um, flipped the ending of the novel. They flipped the ending, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I didn't know that. I think what struck me when I first saw The Quiet American was the... Um, um, a certain... Again, a, cert a certain authenticity. And that was through the um, location photography. Mm -hmm. And a lot of location photography was interior also. Mm -hmm. He really shot in certain interior places in Saigon. And uh, some were set up in, in Chinichita, but others were real. And uh, the sense of terrorism. Mm -hmm. Richard Liu talking about, uh, be at the, in front of the hotel tomorrow at uh, three, three o'clock in the afternoon. I'll show you something. <laughs> and he arrives and they're, they're talking, and next thing you know, a bomb explodes and kills about 20 people. And I'm talking about. And the sense of um, the impending disaster of Vietnam, the impending disaster of America in terms of uh, uh, the, world, the world theater, the world stage, mm -hmm. and the position of America. Uh, and that's why Audie Murphy is so moving in that film in a way, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, but no, it, it, there are problems with, yeah, there were problems, and I think he got, he got uh, criticized a lot for the yeah, picture when it came out. It's being remade yeah. now. It's being remade. Yeah. Who's in it, do you know? I don't know. <laughs> hmm. I'm not sure. It's Michael Redgrave part. Uh, yeah, the Englishman is excellent, yeah. yeah. yeah but the Mankiewicz stuff, is, I, I can't wait. You've got to see Bear for Contessa. I mean, it's got, okay, there's, you know, certain elements uh, that may be of a period in time, and, but uh, what it says about cinema and the world, movie stars and uh, relationships in, in cinema uh, between people behind the camera, in front of the camera, it's quite beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So, take a couple of brief questions. Questions, yes. Yeah, a couple, just a, a few questions. All right. I can't take too many. You mentioned uh, the importance of capturing a time and place or the spirit of that time and place. Yeah. And, and for your new film, I'm wondering if you were at all daunted or were you thrilled by the chance to try to capture old New York? Oh, uh, no, I, I uh, uh, for many years, um, uh, when I grew up downtown, uh, when we moved into Elizabeth Street again, uh, I uh, was fascinated by the, uh, the area around me, St. Patrick's Old Cathedral, the fact that it was an Irish saint in an Italian neighborhood. 
And the fact that the nuns at the St. Patrick's Grammar School, elementary school, were all from Sisters of Mercy from Ireland with Irish brogues. I said, why is that? That's kind of odd. And so I began to learn a little more about it. I learned about Bishop Dubois, who supposedly haunts St. Patrick's downtown. He's buried right in front. You walk right over his grave. And uh, of course, this extraordinary man named Archbishop Hughes. And I learned about it first through the history of the church. And um, I think what happened is that, I, again, it, it's uh, many of the, the movies I made have to deal with people living in that area or from a, from a, a way of life that that area contained. You know, it could be in the Bronx, it could be, it could be you know, maybe Chicago, but, but uh, very, very urban American, uh, American, I mean New York, in a way. And so the history of the city always fascinated me. And it fascinated me, period. The period that fascinated me was between the revolution, revolutionary period and uh, the Civil War. How it changed, uh, why it changed, what were, the, what were the factors, the economics, the history, the different groups of people living there, you know? I mean, when the Italians moved into that Lower East Side area that the Irish originally had, uh, and the Irish had it, I think it was in 1890s, maybe 1880s, late 1880s, 1890s, turn of the century, um, the Italians were segregated to a certain extent and had to, uh, for example, uh, uh, attend mass in the basement of St. Patrick's. So we built our own church, yeah. Madonna di Loretta. Yeah. Madonna di Loretta, which, is where? which was on uh, Elizabeth Street and Bleecker Street. And my, my parents were married in there, my grandmother was buried there. We had, uh, but that was torn down in the uh, 70s and because everything was finally put together. So it was all about, what I mean by that is that uh, the different ethnic groups had settled in a way and the church is now, there's a condominium there. Mm -hmm. um, this is a Madonna di Loretto. But the idea was that um, I heard all these stories, I heard about stories of people coming to uh, attack the Catholic Church in the 19th century and I heard about this Archbishop Hughes who who, this is just one moment in the film right now, uh, and the dates have shifted because it's really more of, a, of a, an impression of the time, not exactly accurate that way, uh, but uh, basically um, uh, organized the entire Irish-American community to fight a group of um, men who were coming down Prince Street from the Bowery towards Mott Street to burn down St. Patrick's Old Cathedral. And that was a group of men called the Know-Nothings. And when I heard the word know-nothings, that's kind of funny. So for years, I started doing research on them. And basically, it was a bunch of guys who basically, when they said, who, what do you stand for? What are your principles? So we know nothing. Yeah. And they, they were aligned with another group called the Wide Awakes. <laughs> the Wide Awakes had a symbol, an open eye, <laughs> carried around. And they weren't going to let any foreign mongrels and foreign invaders come into America, because they weren't American. And that started with the Irish. Yeah. They didn't want them in. And so eventually, the period we're dealing with is 1846, 1862. After the Civil War, the Irish assimilated and everything else. And the Italian, the Italian and uh, uh, Jewish, I think, really came in the 1880s, 1880s I think. Yeah. It was a whole different thing. But um, the test of America, to a certain extent, was here in New York. The test of what America's supposed to be, bring us your homeless, your weary, whatever. You know, The first great wave of immigration was the Irish. And uh, they happened to be coming to America. Um, no money, nothing, and more or less thrown into uh, the worst yeah. slum in the world, the five points. The five points, which are now, I believe, are covered over by a park, which is surrounded by the uh, temples of, of, uh, of uh, like 
Greco-Roman temples are dealing with uh, the jury, uh, what do they call the, the, yeah. the, uh, the government, New York City government, yeah, actually. When you go for Mul jury duty, it's all around, it's, the five it's points Mulberry. is under that. They yeah. just covered it over. <laughs> Never happened, you know? Yeah. Uh, but in any event. Uh, it was a swamp. It was, it was a, a swamp, swamp originally, the collect pond, and people had no money, and uh, didn't, a lot of the Irish couldn't speak English, they were speaking Gaelic. Um, and the very important thing about the Irish, they, they were Roman Catholic. And this is a country that just fought like hell to have separation of church and state. So you had this atmosphere, and that was the atmosphere I was interested in creating, uh, recreating. Uh, I don't say we, it, it's, uh, I don't say it's uh, uh, shot by shot or frame by frame accurate, but what I was really interested in was I, got, I had an excitement. I, I, I felt okay about doing it because for years and years I'd drawn pictures, I had uh, found etchings, and we found some photographs, but there was no photography during the 1840s, 1850s in America. Um, uh, we got some photographs in the 1870s done by Jacob Rees that showed similarities that you could say, we could take from this photograph, but add this, change that, move this over here, and take, take away a lot of the brick buildings, uh, keep them in wood. And when I grew up on Elizabeth Street, there were a few wooden buildings left on Elizabeth. I'll never forget. And uh, one became a chicken market, live chickens. You know, you go in, they, they scream, and they put them in the, that, I don't know what they did in that tin drum. They just yeah. put the, the feathers would go flying. It's kind of like what Lee Marvin oh, did to the woman. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. My, my grandmother said, bring me a frying chicken. You know, bring me a, a, a soup chicken. You know, don't, don't bring me a frying one. So I tell the guy, you know, okay, just a minute. Scree the screeching, the poor thing. <laughs> ah, my brother couldn't do it. My brother couldn't do it. He couldn't, after a while. He couldn't take it. But, uh, and that was in that little shack. It was still, I don't know if, I don't, it must be gone. It must be gone. It's on Elizabeth Street between uh, Prince and, uh, Spring Street, in any event, it was like these stories right coming right out of the cobblestones. And uh, there was so much, so much to discover. And, and of course, we, um, uh, for many years, worked on the stories and, uh, and that sort of thing. So I know I felt, I felt fairly okay in recreating what I thought may have been happening with groups like the Know Nothings and the Wide Awakes, who actually in our film are called the Native, Native Americans, Americans, nativists. And they were a little more well-to-do, you know, the, the costumes are certainly more outgoing. They certainly aren't the group that became the Age of Innocence, uh, that level of society. They're, they're tougher, they're butchers, they're or workers, but they uh, wear very, uh, the costumes, I mean, the, uh, the drawings of the period and the uh, paintings, uh, you'll see some of the, uh, they were very, very expressive costumes and clothes that they wore. And, uh, you know, if you're looking at the plaid pants and, you know, in a way, in a, uh, I wouldn't want to comment on them. You know what I'm saying? Why, is there something wrong with the pants I'm wearing? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> you just get that sense, you don't want to tell these guys anything. And, um, you know, handlebar mustache, long hair, uh, top hats, no derbies. They're very clear about that. But in any event, the, uh, the clothes were statements. The costumes were statements. The, the poor Irish got off the boat hardly had any clothes. And had to just try to find food, find work, find a place to sleep. First, find food. That was the main thing. You know, a lot of coffins coming off the boats. People didn't make it. But in any event, that, that, uh, I, I had a feeling about, I mean, in my mind, it'll never be finished because I, I had so many, there's so many stories of the period and so many different aspects to approach it from that, um, uh, you know, I could keep on going with it. But and it's never really been done in movies. That no, no, that period really hasn't been done. In, history, yeah. And Devil and Daniel Webster has a little of it, but that's in the, that's, um, it's uh, uh, in the country, in yeah. New Hampshire, yeah. very, very different. It's okay. One last word. Yeah, okay. we should probably wrap it up because mm -hmm. we're, we're over. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, I think that that's really all the time we have. But Marty, I really want to thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks thank you, everybody. everybody. Thank you.
The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.